Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 104, verses 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind, and he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's Just a reminder, on the front of our bulletins, we have those uh, lectionary readings that we're following. And uh, the great church abroad, is, uh, many of them are following these, these same readings. And we're looking at one of the passages this morning, and being Numbers 11, verses 1 through 6, and then Numbers 11, 31 and 34. Uh, are, is a portion of that that I wanted to read this morning in our exhortation and encouragement here. So Numbers 11, I'll read this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, outlying, and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt, and it cost nothing, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And we jump up to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey, and on this side a day's journey, and on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them about for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah because they, there they buried the people who had the craving. So at first, the Israelites were curious about the manna. In Exodus 16, it talks about, wow, what is this? What is this substance on the ground? And it comes in the night of the dew. But after eating it for a year, they were getting tired of it. And I don't know if you ate bread for a year. I imagine you probably, nothing but bread, I suppose we get tired of it. But it was a gift. It was a miracle from God. He was sustaining them in the wilderness. So this was only the second of 40 years that they would have to eat the manna. So back in Exodus 16, God told them that they would have meat at twilight and bread in the morning. But in Numbers 11, after much grumbling, God told them that they would have meat until it came out of their nostrils and that they would loathe it. For two days and a night, they gathered meat. Their greed got the better of them as they gathered more than they needed. They probably ate it, and they probably ate a lot. But their lust for meat overwhelmed, and as a result of that, while the meat was still in their mouths, God's anger arose against them, and he put them to death, the sturdiest among them, cutting them down, even the young men of Israel. So as we look back on this event in Israel's history, may this be a reminder to us, not just of Israel's wickedness, but our wicked hearts as well. We know that we can complain easily, disregarding the riches that Jesus and his blood shed for our lives gains us. May we learn to be content, as Paul did, in all things. 
We need to be people who live content and fulfilled lives, not despairing, not complaining, and recognizing the God-given gifts that are all around us. So as we consider our sins and the posture of our hearts this morning, please join me in confessing our sin to God. So as you are able, please kneel with me. From Joel 2, even now declares the Lord, the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Ephesians chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the saints, and so I have been built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you that we can come before your word. We pray that your word would have its way with us. Fill us with your spirit. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Thank you for having me down again to worship with you and to preach for you this morning. It really is a joy to be with you and to come down when I have the opportunity to. My family is again not able to be here with us this morning, and they're very sad. You can uh, pray that they uh, enjoy their day uh, and that I get back to them quickly. As we come to this part of Ephesians, uh, I would like to remind you of something that I've brought up as we have been working through this letter from Paul to the Ephesian churches, and that is that the first half of Ephesians uh, more or less lays out credenda, things to be believed. And then the second half of Ephesians emphasizes, or we see there, much more of the agenda, things to be done. These are, that's where you would find the commands that Paul gives of how people are to conduct themselves, how Christians are to live. But the first half is all about, is all laying the foundation for this. If we're going to know as Christians how to live, we first have to know what to believe. We have to know what Christ has done. We have to know what God has done for us through his son and in us through his spirit. And this, so this part of Ephesians that we're in right now is still part of the credenda. It is still part of the things primarily to be believed. The Ephesians need to know that there is objective peace. 
between Jews and Gentiles. That's what this section is primarily about. There is objective peace between Jews and Gentiles. And by extension, then, there is peace and reconciliation between any two groups in Christ. Between any two groups of people, between any two nations, between any two uh, groups in conflict of any sort, between any two individuals, there is objectively peace and reconciliation in Christ. Apart from Christ, and apart from submitting to Him, there will be no true and lasting peace and fellowship. In Christ, there is objective peace. It's a fact, and we mess around with it. But in Christ, that peace is there. If any two parties are submitting to the Lordship of Christ, objectively, there is peace. Apart from Christ... There can be no objective peace. There can be no true, lasting fellowship. And so this, then, is very important to see in the greater context of the book of Ephesians. Paul's later exhortations to people in specific relationships, when he gives exhortations to husbands and to wives and to parents and to children and to slaves and to masters, all of these people that are living in relationship with one another, All of those exhortations that Paul will give will profit those people nothing if they are not first grounded on the truths that he lays out here. These truths must be believed. These things must be the grounds, the truth of the gospel and what it means must be the grounds on which we then obey and understand what Paul is exhorting us to in the second half of this letter. Verse 14 begins as an explanation of the fact that Christ has brought near those who are far off. You can see this because verse 14 begins with for. For he became, or for he himself is our peace. This is then coming out of verses 11 through 13. The fact that Jesus has brought those who were far off near by the blood of Christ himself. As we see in verse 13. And so verse 14 comes right after that, comes off of that, and says, For, therefore, because of this, he himself is our peace. One of the things I think that is uh, important to see here is that Paul does not say, first and foremost, that Jesus makes peace. Or that Jesus provides peace. Rather, he has, uh, what he does is he is our peace. That's what Paul says. Christ is our peace. It's not just the things that Jesus has accomplished, the work of the cross, although those are certainly tied up in this. Jesus has accomplished peace for people, but this is only true because he himself is peace. Reconciliation and peace come by means of the work of Christ, but the source of it all is the person of Christ. Peace is accomplished through the work of Christ, but fundamentally the source of it all is the person of Christ. Isaiah in chapter 9 says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When he's prophesying the, the one who would be born to, uh, the one who would be born to, to um, govern over Israel and to uh, be their Lord, be their Messiah, he calls him the Prince of Peace. And this is why then in our confessions of faith we do not merely state, like we did in the Apostles' Creed earlier this morning, that we, we don't just state that we believe what Jesus did. 
when you are professing your faith, when you're making a statement of your faith, whether it's to a, a friend, to your family, in church, together, you're not just saying that you believe what Jesus did, although that is true. You are primarily believing in Him. You are primarily believing in Him as a person and that you have come to know Him. He is our peace. That's what Paul says in verse 14. But then Paul goes on from that and he describes it in other ways as well. Verse uh, 15, he says that Christ made peace, right at the end of verse 15 there. So first and foremost, Christ is our peace, but he also made our peace. He is the author of peace. And then verse 17, he is the messenger of our peace. Paul says that he came and he preached peace to you, those who were far off and those who were near, to the Jews and the Gentiles. He is our peace, and because of this, he is the author of peace, and he is the messenger of peace. And so as our peace, Jesus united the Jews and the Gentiles. This was primarily accomplished, or we see this most clearly, in his fulfillment of all of the ceremonial practices prescribed in the Mosaic Law. If you look in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that, Uh, to all the people that he's preaching to, all of them who are Jews, he says that he did not come to do away with the law, with Moses' law. He didn't come to get rid of it. Rather, he came to fulfill it. Hebrews 10, let's turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. This is important for us to understand because there are often questions If God's word is true, if all of his word, as as Paul says in 2 Timothy, if all of his word is um, true, is inspired by God, if all of it is profitable for us, how do we make sense then of all the Old Testament laws uh, that Moses gave, that God gave through Moses concerning the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonial laws and the cleansings? How do we make sense of all of that? There's lots of study that can and should be done, and there's much that we as Christians living today can learn from all of that. But one thing that we do need to understand is that Christ came and fulfilled all of those laws, those laws that had to do with the ceremonial practices of God's people. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, starting in verse 5, helps us understand this. It says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. This is quoting from Psalm Psalm 40. Previously, the author goes on, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. So commenting on Psalm 40, uh, he's saying, at first you say that sacrifices and burnt offerings and peace offerings you don't desire, but they're according to your law. It's according to God's law, but apparently that wasn't God's primary desire. That wasn't what God was after, was these sacrifices in and of themselves. It goes on in verse 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So he, being Jesus, takes away the first that he may establish the second. Takes away the sacrifices and the offerings so that he might come and do God's will. Then verse 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So Jesus comes and he fulfills the sacrifices. He doesn't do away with them in, in saying that they no longer have any bearing, that they no longer are important at all. But he comes and fulfills them. And so he accomplishes all of the things that God's people needed to do to make them holy. And so if you are in Christ, you are holy. That's why Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians and calls the people that he's writing to, these gen- primarily Gentiles, he calls them saints. The word saint just means holy. But only God's people who were ceremonial, ceremonially clean could be considered holy according to the, the law of Moses. So how is it that Paul can address these Gentile Christians as saints, as holy ones? Well, it's because they are in Christ and he has fulfilled the law. These laws uh, were given that, uh, by God and he gave them to separate his people from the surrounding nations. To identify them as set apart or holy for himself and through them to point to their need for a Messiah. The fact that they had to make sacrifices for their sins daily was to bring to their attention their need for someone who could really deal with their sins. The sacrifices were a means of atonement or a picture of atonement, but they themselves did not actually take care of the sin. Actually, the author of Hebrews tells us this as well. If you're still there in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, So the law was a shadow or a picture of good things to come and not the very image of those things. It wasn't the good thing itself. The good thing was to come. It wasn't the good thing itself. So the law can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. And then also in verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So all those sacrifices that the Israelites were doing while they were a shadow of the work that Christ was going to do, those sacrifices themselves did not take away sin. Jesus himself had to come and do that and be the perfect sacrifice. Now, all of these laws, though, had been given to the Jews, and the Jews had become haughty, they'd become prideful in their observance of the ordinances of the law, including adding to them. This is what Jesus addresses when he comes and he lambasts the Pharisees time and time again. They have been adding to God's law, adding requirements, adding ways to be holy, to be observing the law of Moses. And this had become a source of pride for many of the Jews. And because of this, they despised those other nations, those Gentiles who did not observe them. This, uh, we see this in, uh, to look at Acts chapter 11 Verse 3, just as one example. This is when Peter um, has gone and he has preached the gospel to Cornelius' household. Cornelius is a Gentile. Um, Peter goes and he preaches to them. They are converted and they are baptized in the name of Jesus. And then Peter comes back to uh, Jerusalem before the Jews and Uh, It says in verse 2, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, so the Jews or the circumcision party, contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? They cannot believe that Peter would go and have fellowship and eat with Gentiles. It was totally absurd to the Jews that you would do that. Peter himself is uh, drawn back into this later on, and Paul talks about this in Galatians, where 
Peter was fellowshipping with uh, these Gentile Christians, and then some Jews from Jerusalem come and they visit with Peter, and Peter is sort of embarrassed by the fact that he is eating with Gentiles, and so he goes and sits with the Jews and neglects the Gentiles. And Paul rebukes Peter to his face because of this, because Peter has missed the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to bring unity between these two parties, to bring peace between Jews and Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles, in turn, generally despise the Jews right back at you because of their strange laws and customs. Uh, One example of this, look at um, way back in, in Esther. This is when the Jews are in their captivity in Babylon. Esther chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, you have Queen Esther, who, or Esther who is made queen in, uh, in the, the court of the king, Ahasuerus. And her uncle, Mordecai, is a prominent uh, man, but he's also a Jew, somehow working with the court. And there's this other man named Haman, who is in Ahasuerus' court, and he uh, and Mordecai is refusing to give Haman the homage that Haman thinks is due to him. And so Haman decides that he wants to punish Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people because of this. But his comments to King Ahasuerus are, I think, uh, helpful here. In verse 8, Haman comes to Ahasuerus, and he's setting before them this issue of the Jews, this problem people. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. It's interesting that Haman, when he wants to turn Ahasuerus against the Jews, the thing that he points to is their laws. They're, they're very strange laws. I think this is a good um, type of generally the perspective that the Gentiles would have had towards the Jews. They're a strange lot, those Jews, and all their ceremonies that they keep and all their sacrifices and their, they wash their hands all the time. And they're, they're doing all these strange things to make themselves holy. And they only worship one God. And they don't bow down to any idols or any images of this God. They're a strange people. So I think the Gentiles, as much as the Jews despise the Gentiles, I think the Gentiles despise the Jews as well. And it was this enmity between Jews and Gentiles that was so often aroused and inflamed in the preaching of the gospel during the days of the apostles. You read through the book of Acts, and there's all these riots that break out. And much of the time, part of the reason these riots are breaking out is because the Jews are hating the fact that the apostles are preaching to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles are sort of reacting to that, and there's this huge riot that erupts. It was this enmity between Jews and Gentiles that would often be inflamed by the preaching of the gospel. But Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Jesus broke down the separation between these two groups. He abrogated the ordinances by his life and death on the cross. He fulfilled the law, broke down that separation so that in Christ, those laws no longer separate Jew and Gentile. And in doing so, he put the enmity to death. 
This is what Paul says. If you look back now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. So Jesus himself is our peace, so that he might reconcile them both, both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, putting to death the hatred between Jew and Gentile. Having created one new man from the two, Jesus is and brings peace between Jews and Gentiles, as well as peace between both and God. We see this in verses 17 and 18. So Jesus unites them both through the cross into one body, verse 16, puts to death the enmity. So there's this wall between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus breaks down that wall so that they can be one body, united together through the blood of the cross. And then verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. Jews and Gentiles are united together and they have reconciliation between one another or towards one another, but also between them and God the Father. And because, uh, because God is righteous... And because God is holy, God's law, even the law that we follow, the law that we understand still applies directly to us, God's law requires perfect righteousness. God's law requires perfect obedience. He says, be holy because I am holy. Be perfect because I am perfect. And because of our fallen nature, this is impossible for man to accomplish. It is impossible for man to be perfect as God is perfect. It's impossible for man to be holy as God is holy. And so the Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for us, for our sins. Propitiation is a big word. It simply means to turn away God's wrath. Because we are sinners, because we are fallen in our nature, we deserve God's wrath. It would be right for God to smite us in his wrath. And so God sent his son to be the turning away of his wrath from us. Jesus' death on the cross and our salvation through it then leaves nothing for us to boast in. This was Paul's point earlier on in chapter 2. There's nothing in us that we can point to to boast in for our salvation. Nothing in us. It, it's all Jesus coming and turning away God's wrath from us, being on the cross in our place for us, being the substitute for us, completely uh, keeping and perfectly keeping God's law to then give us that righteousness so that we might be able to stand before God as perfect in Christ. And by means of this grace, this gospel, sinners are reconciled to God. But there's something more than that that we see here in Ephesians 2. The foundation of it is our reconciliation to God, the salvation that we have in Christ. But not only that, through Christ, sinners, those that fall short of God's law, those that fall short of God's glory, have access to the Father. So it's not just that you are saved 
It's not just that you won't go to hell in Christ. It's not only that, but it's also that you have access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Is what Paul says in verse 18. We have access to the Father. It's not just that God sees us, knows that we're sinners, but because we're in Christ, He doesn't judge us and He just looks the other way. He actually draws us in. He's the good Father. And having declared us to be forgiven, draws us near, grants us access to Him. There's two two, um, brief applications I want to point out to you from this verse, verse 18. And the first is there's a a wonderful picture here of um, uh, both the Trinity. People always want to know, where where can I go in Scripture to see the Trinity being demonstrated in Scripture? This is one place. For through Him, through Christ, through the Son, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. All three persons are mentioned here working together in concert, but clearly separate persons. For through Christ, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. This is also a picture for us of the Trinitarian nature of prayer. We have access to God the Father. We pray to God the Father. Jesus tells us to. He says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father in heaven. So we pray to the Father. We pray to the Father through the Son in Jesus' name. And we pray to the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says in Romans that it's the Spirit in us that gives us utterance when we pray. Okay, but so that's one application that's, I think, very helpful to see here, the Trinitarian nature of prayer and, and seeing the Trinity in this verse. But also, I want to speak directly to fathers here. Fathers, this is a picture for us of what fatherhood is. Fatherhood is granting forgiveness and granting access. And I think the temptation as fathers often is to have children in your home whom you are responsible for and, and, and you're willing to forgive them as they sin, as they sin against you, as they sin against your wife and, and as their children and growing and learning. And you're willing to care for them and forgive them, but do you grant them access to you? Are you... In some ways, I don't like this term, but in some ways it's helpful. Are you an accessible father? Do your children come to you? Do they know they can come to you? Can they come to you? Can they come to you with anything? Just like you want to be able to pray to your father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and ask him anything, do your children see you as a good image of that father? This is something that I think we as fathers need to grow in. We need to confess that we are often not accessible, that we don't allow our children to have access to us and instead turn in repentance and ask the Father, our Father, to grant us His grace, grant us His Spirit to do this. But this is what we are called to do. You bear the name of Father. You bear the title of Father because you are to image the good Father, our Heavenly Father. We have access by one Spirit to the Father. And this also helps us understand 
why real reconciliation between people is only possible in Christ. Jesus brought peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Both needed the peace of Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles needed the peace that Christ brings. The the Jews needed the peace of Christ because uh, their covenant sign, circumcision, we talked about this last time, circumcision was not enough. It was not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. It was not enough to be following Moses' laws. That didn't bring the Jews peace with God. Their covenant sign was not sufficient if they did not also have the faith of Abraham. The Gentiles needed the peace of Christ to be right with God because they were not in covenant with God at all. They were still without excuse, but they were apart from God. They were far off from God. The Gentiles needed to be brought near. And what's common between all people then, what's common between Jews and Gentiles, remember that this divide, Jews and Gentiles, summarizes everybody in the, or includes everybody in the world. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's nothing else in this view. All people then were separated from God and all needed to be brought near by Christ. And in Christ, all are brought near. All have access to the Father. The Father loves us because we loved Christ. This is what John says, or what Jesus says in John chapter 16. John 16, verse 27. Let me read this to you. Again, this is, this is in the context of how is it that only in Christ can we find true peace and true reconciliation between any two groups, any two individuals. John chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you, speaking to his disciples. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Jesus says that the Father loves his disciples, loves Jesus' disciples because they have loved him. And, of course, we, we don't forget what John says elsewhere, that we love him because he first loved us. Paul, John's point, Jesus' point, is not that we are, uh, um, we're, we're plugging in the right, the right uh, uh, code or the right combination to unlock God's love. If we love God, we push the right buttons, then we unlock the love of the Father. But, but there is something going on here. Why does the Father love you? Why does he love you right now? If you are in Christ, why does he love you? John says he loves you because you love Christ. Do you know the Father's love? Do you know his love for you? He loves you as you love Christ. We are no longer at enmity with the Father, but rather we have peace and fellowship with him because his love for the Son... His love for Jesus is such that he also loves any who love the Son. The Father loves the Son so much that anybody else who loves the Son, the Father loves. You love the Son? I love you. You love the Son? I love you. You love the Son? I love you. The the Father loves any who love the Son because he loves the Son so much. 
True reconciliation and peace between men comes from the shared love that they have for Christ. Just like the the enmity between you and God is gone, there is reconciliation between you and God because of your shared love for the Son. We are one in Christ. We are the body of Christ. Those who are in Christ are united by the power of the Spirit as the body of Christ, and the body doesn't hate itself. Paul actually will use this argument when he's addressing husbands and wives later on in Ephesians. Husbands and wives are a picture of this. Husbands and wives are one flesh. They've been united. And it is absolutely ridiculous for husbands and wives to be at odds with one another, to to have enmity between one another. It doesn't make sense. You're, you're one. You're one. Do you hate your own body? That's Paul's point at the end of Ephesians. How, how can you hate your own body? No man hates his own body. So why do we, why, why do we not have this unity? Why do we not have this peace? Oh, it's because of our own sin. It's because in, in many instances, <clears throat> we have stopped loving Christ. If I'm not loving Christ, there's no way I'm going to love this other person. And if I find that I can't love this other person, that should tell me something. If I can't love this other person who bears Christ's name, who's been baptized into Christ, if I can't love this person, it doesn't tell me something about that person. Primarily, it tells me something about me, my heart, and my love for Christ. Because we know that the Father loves us because we love the Son. That, that's, that's the means by which the enmity between me and God is gone, is because of my love for Christ. And because of my love for Christ, I know that the Father loves me. Well, if, if me and this other person are at odds with one another, what needs to happen then is that both of these people need to love Christ. There's not going to be peace here. There's not going to be reconciliation here until there's reconciliation here between you and the Father, between you and Christ. That has to happen first. And if it's not going to happen, there's not, it's not going to happen here. And this is true in any relationship. <clears throat> Any relationship in which both people believe in Jesus, both people have been baptized into Christ, there is peace. There is objective peace and reconciliation. Jesus has taken care of it and he put, it, put the enmity to death on the cross. He died for it. And so then as you love Christ more, you love those who love Christ more. Peace with God in Christ means peace with those who also are in Christ. And and I hope this helps you to see that this is the only way. You can't have peace between individuals by um, reaching deep down and working really hard. I'm I'm just going to really feel the love for that person. 
You're not going to have peace by um, making sure that that person takes care of all of their problems. You're not going to have peace um, by, uh, by venting your feelings to a counselor or to a friend. That won't bring any peace here. The only way to bring peace is by turning to Christ, confessing your own sins. You can't confess their sins, so stop trying, right? Uh, you, you You can't confess their sins, so stop pointing them out all the time. Go and and deal with yourself before Christ. Because that, if you love Christ, then you know that the Father loves you. And if the Father loves you and you desire love with this person, guess what? The Father's going to be working in you to bring that to pass. If you are both in Christ, there is nothing between you that is too strong. No wall that is too strong. No enmity that is too strong for Christ. He can deal with that. This is true for individuals. This is also true for groups of people. Right? This is true in, in our, over the last year or so, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and, and the absolute nonsense that it brings by trying to say that we're going to um, bring peace by, by this long list of requirements, by this undoing of the family, by this undoing of the way that, um, that we govern. That's not going to bring peace. Where there is ethnic divide and ethnic enmity and ethnic hatred, the only way to bring peace is in Christ. There is no other way. And all of our attempts to do it some other way are only going to make things worse. It's only going to inflame things more. Peace with God in Christ means peace with those who also are in Christ. But Paul doesn't end there. Paul goes on and he says, therefore, to the Ephesians and and thus to all of us Gentiles, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're no longer far off. You've been brought near. You've been made fellow citizens and members of God's house. Paul says to the Gentiles, these Ephesians, that they are built on and rest on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. And this is strange, if you remember the the divide between Jews and Gentiles. The apostles, all of them, were Jews. And, And Paul says to the Ephesians, you are built on their foundation, the foundation of their teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not just the King and Savior of the Jews. His apostles don't just go to the Jews. They go there first, and then they go out to the Gentiles. Because Jesus is the King and the Savior of the Gentiles as well. Because God is their God. Not only that, Paul says, not only are you built on the foundation of the apostles, but also you're built on the foundation of the prophets. Who are the prophets? It's not just the prophets in, in the Bible, the, 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 the books written by the prophets, beginning with Isaiah and all the way down to Malachi. It includes that. But Abel is the first one identified as a prophet. Jesus identifies Abel, remember Cain and Abel, as a prophet when he's speaking, um, uh, looking out over Jerusalem. 
He says to, to Jerusalem that you have killed the prophets that I have sent you, and you're guilty of the blood of them from Abel to Zechariah. Abel was a prophet. I think there's a case to be made that Adam was a prophet. All of uh, the, the, the Gentiles then are built on the foundation of all of the prophets. So what does Paul mean here? It means that the Old Testament is for the Gentiles. It means that the teaching of the Old Testament, the prophets, is for you. Gentiles now have a new adopted history. Abraham is our father. Right? Abraham is our father by faith. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, trusting that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. All of it is inspired by him. And all of it is profitable to fully equip us to serve God. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2. And so, this is very important for us to remember and consider in our day. We do not set loose the Old Testament writings. We do not say that they don't matter anymore because Christ has come. Remember, Jesus, Jesus made that very clear. That's not why he came. He did not come to get rid of all of that. He came to fulfill it. And rather, the Holy Spirit here affirms that those teachings, those writings, remain part of, uh, part of the foundation on which you stand today. We rest on this foundation because it is all tied together in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, which is Paul's point in verse 20. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone would be the first piece that was set in a foundation so that the rest of the, uh, and, and the rest of the walls would adhere to it so you'd have a straight, solid foundation. Jesus is this cornerstone uniting all of the walls of God's house together. And this language of Jesus being set as the cornerstone and, um, uh, and, and the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together, this unity, this, the, the death of enmity, all of this language in this passage, I think shows the fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant that God gave to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. So I'd like you, sort of as we close here, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel was a prophet for the Jews when they were in exile in Babylon. And God gives Ezekiel a vision of the new covenant that he's going to give to his people when he's going to deliver them. But we see here that I think this promise, this vision, uh, this prophecy that God gives is not just about the return of the Jews to Israel, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, Rather, it's really about the rebuilding of the new Israel in Christ. This is the language, I think, that Paul is borrowing from when he uh, writes to the Ephesians. We're not going to read all of chapter 37, but I want you to look through it with me. This is the new covenant promise, and I think we'll see lots of parallels with Ephesians chapter 2 that we've seen so far. In the first half of Ezekiel 37, you have the story of Uh, God showing Ezekiel a valley of dry bones. And the Lord asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know, Lord. And God, God tells, the Lord tells Ezekiel to preach 
to the dry bones. And the spirit of the Lord goes out, the breath of the Lord goes out, and the dry bones are enfleshed, and the breath of God goes out, and the dry bones, the, the, the bodies now live. Paul had said to the Ephesians, you were dead in your sins, but you were made alive through the preaching of the gospel. You were made alive in Christ. The dry bones live. Next, in verses 15 through 23, there's the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. They've both been demolished. They've been sent into exile separately over the course of a couple hundred years. There was great enmity between northern Israel and southern Israel because of the divided kingdom. Well, in verses 15 through 23, the Lord tells Ezekiel that he is going to bring together this divided kingdom. He tells Ezekiel to take two sticks and on the sticks write all the tribes of Israel according to the different kingdoms and then bind the sticks together. And as he goes into, uh, among the people and the people ask him, what are you doing with those sticks? He's to tell them that this is what's going to happen to Israel and Judah. They're going to be brought together. They're going to be united together. This is God's prophecy. Well, we've seen that in Ephesians. It wasn't just Israel and Judah. Rather, actually, it was the Jews, all of the Jews and the Gentiles are brought together, united together. The enmity is gone between them by the preaching of the gospel. Not only that, verses 24 and 25, we'll read this. This is, again, God's promise to his people, having brought reconciliation between them, having preached to the dry bones and and they live. He says in verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. This is 500 years or so after David. David's long dead. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the son of David that had been prophesied, who would reign on the throne forever, have an eternal reign. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Jesus uses this language of, of one shepherd being the good shepherd all the time in John. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. They shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Jesus is king, and he is king eternally. He is king forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. Verses 25 and 26, God's people dwell in the land that he has given them, and we see that it's not just limited to the kingdom of Israel anymore. Rather, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and baptize and teach all the nations, all of them, the whole world. And not only has God, is God establishing his people in the land that he has given them, the whole world, he enters into an everlasting covenant of peace with them. You see that in verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Who is that peace? Christ is our peace. Finally, God's sanctuary is in the midst of his people forevermore. Verses 27 and 28. God is going to dwell with his people forever. His sanctuary, his temple is going to be with them forever. And we know that this is true because Paul says, and Peter will say in his epistle as well, that you are the temple. You are the temple. 
You're being built together, built up together to be the house of God so that he dwells with you forever. As long as God's people live as his people, as the church, then God is dwelling on earth with his people. There's an incomplete sense to it. Jesus is not with us in person, in in a physical sense yet, but he will be. And you are, you, his church, are his house. And he dwells with you. And if he dwells with you, then you have peace. And there is no enmity between you and any other person that loves Jesus Christ. And so to, to wrap all of this up, all of scripture is for you. Ezekiel 37 is for you. And Ephesians 2 is for you. All of it is for you. And all of God's promises to his people are for you because Christ has given himself for you. He placed himself on the cross for your sins. And so in Christ, you objectively have peace with God. This is because he has forgiven you, he's wiped away your sins, and he's given you a new heart. He loves you because you are in Christ. He loves you because you love Jesus. Christ is your peace. He's not only your peace with the Father, but he is also your peace with your brother or your sister in Christ. That person who walks in the room and you you cannot imagine going over and talking with them and things going well. I, I would imagine that Maybe it's not the same person always, but every single person in this room has somebody that they are at enmity with. Unless, unless you are clean and have confessed your sins and are and enjoying the peace of Christ right now, there is somebody that you're at enmity with. Because that's what sin does. It might be your husband, it might be your wife, it might be your father, your, your kids, it might be a brother or a sister, it might be a cousin, it might be a coworker, it might be a neighbor. There is somebody that you are at odds with. Do you love Jesus? Then there is a promise of peace for you. A promise of lasting peace for you. Do you want that? Then turn to Christ, confess your sins, declare that he is Lord, that he is Savior, and then wait and trust. There is peace for you between you and anybody that loves Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you for the promises that are declared to us in your word. Father, these things are hard for us to grasp at times. They're hard for us to believe. They're hard for us to live out but we know that you are the good father. We know that we have access to you and so we plead with you in the name of Jesus because of what he has done that you would grant peace in our lives, in our relationships individually. God, we ask that you would grant peace to our nation, that our nation would turn and confess our sins to you so that you would grant peace. We ask that you would grant peace around the world not just in our nation, not just in our communities, but but far beyond this, as the gospel goes forth. Would you help us to be vessels of that peace? Because we know that we are forgiven, because we know that you love us, because we love your son. Mm -hmm. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, you have, I, I believe you've heard this before, but it bears reminding, our celebration of the Lord's Supper during the worship service was pictured beforehand by the peace offering in the Old Covenant. The peace offering was where the offerer and God would commune together. It was a particular offering where both the part of the offering would be burnt up, consumed by God, and part would be eaten by the offerer. And this happened after the offerer had been made right with God through his confession and other sacrifices. We see that pictured in our worship service. We come and we confess our sins, we worship the Lord, we hear his word preached, and then we come to his table. Given what we just looked at in Ephesians 2, the parallel, I think, is even more clear. We come to this table to commune with God, giving thanks to him for the declaration of the forgiveness of our sins, giving thanks for the union that we have with Christ. We come here to have fellowship with God, and we come here to have fellowship with one another. We have access to him now because of Christ's body broken and his blood shed for us. And we come here to partake of his body and blood in the bread and wine. And so this is a meal of peace with God because Christ is our peace. It's also a meal of peace with your brother and sister in Christ. And so uh, in in our worship service, we don't do this regularly, but often uh, churches will have a time before before communion where there's an opportunity for you to go and make things right with someone. And we're not going to take time to do that here. But if it's somebody next to you, I do this with my kids, not irregularly. If there is an issue on the way to church, um, make that right before you come to the Lord's table. Don't let the body be divided as you come to the place where the body is united together. And if, it's, if, it's not, if it doesn't work uh, because the person's sitting across the room, don't get up and do that right now. But decide before God that you, have, you forgive that person. And that after the service, you will go and make it right with that person. And you won't let it wait until you get home. You'll go and make it right. This is a table of peace. This is a union that we have in Christ because Christ is our peace. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge to you this morning is two parts, and you probably can guess what they are already. The first part is believe that Christ is your peace. It's true. It's objectively true, and you actually can't do anything about it. If you're in Christ, he is your peace. The second thing is, live that out. If he is your peace, then you can have peace with all the people around you, all the people that aren't here this morning that you interact with. So go and be the peace of Christ to those around you. Hear now the benediction from your Lord from Galatians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.